Welcome to part two of Victor Christou's Invested Investor podcast. In part one, we heard all about his entrepreneurial ventures. This podcast will focus on his investment career, including Victor's tip to any entrepreneur looking for funding from CIC. We look for transparency. Journeys last many years, so there's no point in hiding things. So I think at Stanford, you met David Gill, who we've interviewed previously, and then that led on to your next role. Can you describe that? Absolutely right. So I went to Stanford as a result of wanting to learn more about business and having a view that actually venture capitalists had a better life than entrepreneurs. I I think that is a view that now I've been a venture capitalist for a considerable period of time. I'm I'm, I'm rethinking, but but certainly in those days, it seemed that the venture capitalists had a better life than, than the entrepreneurs or my entrepreneurial experience. So I went to Stanford because it was the home of entrepreneurship and venture capital. While I was there, so 2005, I met David Gill. And David Gill had come out of Cambridge and the, I guess... Banking, the, I think. Banking, you're, you're yeah, that, yeah, Cambridge establishment. Yeah. And actually, he and I, as two of the three Brits on the course, struck up a friendship. And he actually helped me get my first job in venture. So uh, it's all down to David that I'm in venture. So David knew of the founders of Oxford Capital Partners, which was where I got my first job in 2005 in venture. So I left the Bay Area and came back to the UK for family reasons, really, because my wife, who wasn't my wife then, but became my wife, didn't want to move out to the US at that time. Uh, So we came back to the UK and got a job back in Oxford, where I've been living before, and worked at Oxford Capital until 2009, and really cut my teeth there in venture. It was a really good training ground, because it was an entrepreneur, EIS investor, so entrepreneur investment scheme investor. And we transacted a lot and did a lot of deals from 2005 to 2009. And so I learned a huge amount from Ted and David, the founders there. Ted being the father. Ted Mott, yeah, Yeah, David Mott, about venture investing. And I coupled that with what I'd already learned in Stanford and my experience. That period for me from 99 through to 2009, that decade for me was totally transformational in sort of my life story, really, because I'd gone on this entrepreneurial journey, spotted that I had a weakness and didn't understand something, so did something about it and went and fixed that, had a view of where I wanted to go next, and actually made an effort to go and do that and move into venture. And I think that's been another actual lesson for me. When I started, as I was saying earlier on, when I started just my own life journey, right? When you leave home, I didn't know what I didn't know, right? And I I knew I liked chemistry and that was what got me really excited. Never been to university before. But for me, the next step, and really that was all as far as I was looking, was to go on a journey and do what I liked the most. And because I liked it, I was good at it. And then I took that step. And because I was enjoying it and kind of got comfort with where I was and took the next step after that, which was to do a PhD, which was what I wanted to do next. And because I got a PhD and I'd gone down that route, the next step to being an academic was to do postdoctoral research. And I had an opportunity to go to Berkeley and I took it. And then I had an opportunity to start a business and I took that. And I had an opportunity to go to business school and I took that. And I think it's really, really important, I think in one's life journey, that you take the opportunities you get, right? Because they don't come by very often and you have to have 
you take a risk. It's an entrepreneurial mindset, of course, not, not an academic mindset yeah. in general. Yeah, I, I, for me, it's always been about opportunity yeah. and not about backfilling. So I think if you can tolerate the risk and the instability, I think taking opportunities as they come to you, if they look like good opportunities, and you have the wherewithal to make them what you want them to be, I think there's, there's no better life. That's ultimately how I got, went from Oxford Capital Partners to Wellington Partners, which is one of the, the largest pan-European venture capital investors out there, worked with a brilliant team there. So you moved from the EIS Fund, which was in the millions each year, to yeah. Wellington, which was how big? So was it? I joined Wellington 4, which was the Wellington Fund 4, which is a 260 million euro fund as part of a billion dollars under management, very early investors in Spotify, had been very, very successful in Germany and it had expanded internationally. And I joined the partnership at the time when they just opened the UK office. And I was looking to move into something bigger from Oxford Capital. And so moved there and had a fantastic time, learned a huge amount from some very, very seasoned investors actually, and also learned how difficult it is to fundraise. People always think about venture capitalists as people who are in charge of the purse. And actually, all venture capitalists have to raise capital from people who ultimately control their purse. And so venture capitalists go out to talk to pension funds, insurance groups, sovereign wealth, to convince those organisations that the venture capital fund that you're representing is a good investment opportunity in the same way that entrepreneurs have to convince venture capitalists that... Or angels. Yeah, yeah or angels, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's, you know, you're always pitching. You're pitching all your life. Angels don't have to do that because they've already uh, built the wealth up. But at some point, the angel will have been pitching to raise capital no, or it's to an do entre- something. It's an entrepreneurial journey yeah, to exactly. that point. Yeah, exactly. yeah so I think, yeah. you know, constantly you are responsible for your own brand and your own destiny right so i think i'm a big believer in ownership as well owning the outcome and making sure that you influence what's within your sphere of influence and you drive it the way you want it to go let's talk about some of the journeys that you've yeah. been on with ocp you know some of those yeah. the, the lessons learned there then we'll move of course on to uh, wellington and uh, yeah. on to cic i think the experience i had at Oxford Capital was informative in the, in the sense that I went from managing my own business and being in control of my own destiny, as I was saying earlier on, to some degree, because we were dependent on capital raises. But, you know, at least I could control the science and understand how to take the next step forwards to managing a portfolio of assets where you effectively you get to live your life vicariously through other people. Now, a question most people ask me is that why wasn't I a repeat entrepreneur? It's an interesting question because I thought the idea that I had when we created Opsis was a really good idea. And I think over 20 years, it's proven to be such. I didn't have another idea that was as good as that. I just didn't believe that I had an idea that was as good as that. And so I thought I built up a skill set that I'd complemented by going to business school. And also, I mean, that journey wasn't as successful as it potentially could have been. Yeah. You had made some mistakes. It didn't make you fabulously wealthy yeah, at the yeah. start, did it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so I had to work, but I'd learned a huge amount. And I, th- I thought there's an opportunity for me to put those skills to work in venture. So who were you investing in at OCP? Were they tech companies in the Yeah, tech Oxford? companies. So, yeah, no, so all across the UK, but with a natural focus to Oxford. 
and generally tech businesses rather than software. So very much B2B deep tech businesses, which is now in, in flavour again, but uh, went through a phase of being deeply out of... Um, oh, did it? In yeah, the, the OO? Yeah, so especially when you went through the dot-com boom, there was a lot of B2C consumer internet type activity. It was difficult to get deep tech businesses funded. But deep tech businesses require deep tech knowledge. And so I felt that I could bring that to bear and to complement the other skills that there were at, at Oxford Capital. And so I learned a lot about managing a portfolio, about the importance of representing the firm, Oxford Capital, or whatever firm you're in, that rather than going native, I guess is the venture phrase for it, just buying into the vision that the And overselling uh, it even internally, never yeah, mind externally. I, it's a risk that you have to be aware of when you're an investor because you spend so much time with your entrepreneurs that one does need to maintain a distance. Uh, be supportive and be helpful in every way you can possibly be. But the job's a financial job and to make a financial return. And so maintaining some element of distance and some element of scepticism and sense of value of the money, right? Because I think respect for the money. We talk a lot about respecting the entrepreneur and making sure the entrepreneur is duly rewarded as a business is successful. But the capital deserves that same kind of respect too. And I think it's very easy for everybody to lose track of the fact that people are committing, and angels as well, committing substantial amounts of capital and trust to an entrepreneur. And that capital is as important to the business as the idea, in my view. So I think respecting the capital is an important aspect of the business that I've come to appreciate, in particular now that I'm running the firm here at Cambridge Innovation. So you moved from Wellington, you moved over here to Cambridge? Yeah, so I was thinking about what I should be doing with my life and then had a phone call from a search firm, from Paul Bailey actually, search firm in, in Cambridge. He said, oh, we've got this fantastic opportunity for you to work in a university spin-out fund. It's like, I'm never working in a university spin-out, anything to do with a university again. And so the one condition I, I had when I joined was that I wouldn't have to deal with university politics. And um, <laughs> sadly, not true. Yes. <laughs> well, it was initially because Peter Keane was yeah, so running Peter, it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So Peter Keane was one of the founders here. Yes. And I, I joined Peter, I guess, effectively employee number two. But Peter already had a vision for where he wanted his life to go. And so I took over from Peter in August, September 2015. And have been running Cambridge Innovation ever since. But you raised a fund, initial yeah, fund. So, so Cambridge Innovation is a vehicle created by the University of Cambridge to be the private provider of capital to its spin-out funds. So the university, I think, has been very far-sighted, actually, in thinking about how best to structure the university, actually, and, and the university, its relationship with its academics to create a culture of entrepreneurship within the university. So the university encourages entrepreneurship and has set up what I think is one of the best tech transfer groups in the whole world. So the university's commercialization group, Cambridge Enterprise, I really believe is one of the world's leading commercialization groups. They are very active and very supportive in creating businesses out of university intellectual property, and that's their mandate to translate intellectual property into the public domain. It's not just the university, is it? Your remit is slightly wider than just yeah, the Yeah, so we 
operate more broadly within the Cambridge cluster, which is this sort of loose aggregation and self-identifying set of individuals, organisations and operations in and around Cambridge, which has been a very successful ecosystem since the 1960s when you know the very first science park in the UK was set up in Cambridge. So Cambridge has for a long time been the thought leader in that space and the Cambridge cluster now is Europe's largest tech cluster, probably third largest healthcare cluster in the world and certainly the university is one of the most entrepreneurial universities in the world. Cambridge Innovation is right at the heart of all that activity providing private capital to the best and fastest growing businesses in that ecosystem. And we like to believe that we're an important part of the ecosystem. And how big is the fund? So we manage £125 million and it's on our balance sheet and it's an important aspect of what we do that we have a balance sheet structure to our investment. So you're patient, basically. Yeah, so we just want to have the flexibility and we can get that flexibility in funds increasingly, but we are set up as a balance sheet investor to allow us to build businesses as, as fast as we can, but not to exit those businesses early and be constrained by a short term. Yeah, having a VC generally yeah. has a term, doesn't it? So. Yeah. So, so, and that term is typically five years of investment, and then the next five years you spend trying to sell those businesses. And that is typically not long enough. I mean, one of the lessons I've learned over time is it takes a long, long time to build big businesses. That's in 10, 15, 10, 15 years, so 20 years. We started Opsys right at the start of the whole movement in OLEDs. So, you know, the very first patents, we filed our key patents in 96, 97. So they're all gone now? Well, then you get extensions on them and continuations. But I guess people only now, so 2018, beginning to think about OLED screens. Yes, probably about three years ago. Three years ago, but an OLED TV is still viewed as being quite an exotic thing. And yet people are familiar with OLED displays. But it takes 20 years to build tech into or an idea into a business. Digital media businesses move more rapidly. I think there's anecdotal data that shows that it takes eight years to build a unicorn, a billion-dollar business in Europe. I think the healthcare businesses take 15, 16, 17 years to, to grow to maturity. And a short-term fixed-life vehicle just doesn't offer you the flexibility to do that. I think that things are changing and, and there are structures in, coming into it. So what's your most exciting investment in terms of growth? And I don't mean in terms of working with the entrepreneurs here, but in terms of you know, investment at a certain point. Was it Spotify or was it something else? By the time I joined Wellington, Spotify was already a really big business. So it's a fantastic business to be associated with. I don't feel that I can collect any of the credit for, yes, for, that, for that business. But it was interesting late. watching yeah. like Daniel Eck and those guys build a really, really big business from the position of being an investor in that business. was was just interesting to see that happen and learned a lot about the way they operated and created their business to be you know, a globally important business. I think we've got elements of that business in some of the portfolio we have today. So CMR Surgical, yeah. which is a, a medical robot for surgery. I think that's going to be a huge Yeah, we're business. intending to interview Martin Frost Martin, as the yeah. CEO. Yeah. I think he has a vision, and it speaks about Cambridge, how Cambridge Innovation came to be an investor in that. So I've known Martin for years and years and years. So I actually first met him in Oxford Capital, which is the other thing to learn, actually, that 
relationships you build early on in your career do come back and have an impact on you later on in life. Could be negative impact. Yeah, negative or positive, yes, right? So yeah. you really have to think about the way you behave in your business career. It's a really interesting anecdote picked up in business school, which actually helped me. I mean, I've always thought about relationships anyway, but it was brought home in business school once. So again, with David Gill, we took a negotiation class in business school, which was an eye-opener because the Sloan program is full of really, really seasoned and experienced executives. And in the cohort that I was in was the chief negotiator for GM, Oh, it's General, General Motors, Motors, right? Who'd been involved in a huge number of negotiations with all of the workforce. Oh, really? Not and just the tier one suppliers, but the workforce? No, the workforce. Oh, yes. And so she brought to the negotiation class a level of experience and understanding of how negotiations happen in the real world that a lot of the MBA students had no idea about. Mm. So... It really brought home to me the longevity of a negotiation and the longevity of a relationship. Because the thing that became clear was that those people who maximize for their own position at all times tend to have relatively short careers. Whereas if you maximize and compromise going forwards, you build relationships and working relationships that survive. And if you do good for people, people do good for you. There's this reciprocity that is much more than a theory, it actually happens in the real world. And I think you don't have to maximise your position at all times in order to be successful. And I think that is something that we bring in at Cambridge Innovation. So let's be patient, really, with your... Yeah, but also not trying to maximise your position and not always trying to get absolutely the best price and have this zero-sum game where you have to win and someone else has to lose. Because there are multiple positions where actually if you compromise a bit, both parties or all parties can win. Well, the rule number one of negotiation is win-win, isn't it? Yeah. Whatever that win-win means, it means you both walk away happy with smiling, don't from the, even if one might have lost. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's making sure that you understand what's important to other people and everybody tries to get there. I mean, you can't always get there and there are some people for whom it's just impossible so, Victor, let's just talk through some of the failures. I mean, we all have our successes occasionally, but it's the failures we learn from. Yeah. Give us some examples. Well, I think my own business, you know, arguably didn't turn out the way we wanted it. Could have made more money. So, and that was a question about capital intensity and misjudging the business model. So, I shy away now from businesses that are very capital intensive because it's difficult to see how a venture investment is right for that. Also shy away from businesses that are dependent on legislation. So at Oxford Capital, I had an investment that was it's a supply chain investment, essentially, and provided verification of tropical hardwood through supply chain. So it made sure that the tropical hardwood that was coming into the supply chain was legitimate. And, the provenance of yeah, it. Provenance, yeah, provenance. So, and it was, in order to be successful... That business required the EU and the US to mandate that tropical hardwood was sourced sustainably and provenanced correctly. That legislation was mired in politics and took years and years and years to come through and years beyond the horizon that we had for the capital investment in the business. So that business, I think, floundered and failed as a result of being dependent upon legislation 
So I think that's always a concern. But there's also another side to that, isn't there? Domino printing here in Cambridge grew on the basis you had to put sell-by dates on eggs and things like that and milk bottles. Yeah. So the legislation actually drove that positively. So, so it can be positive, but if you're waiting or dependent upon... But it could equally go away. You see that in the solar tariffs that were changed dramatically and resulted in a number of businesses going bust as well. Never had any solar investments for that reason. But a really good example of how legislation drives value is in the healthcare sector, right? which is completely driven by legislation. And people who don't understand the legislative process flounder because it's very, very complex. But that software supply chain business is a good example of a, a failed business that depended on legislation. And another example of capital intensity in a business that I worked on at Wellington, which was a, a wood gasification business. So took wood chip and, and wood pellets and gasified them to generate energy, electricity and energy. Gasified, not burned? No, so you gasify it. So you do it in the absence of oxygen and you vaporise the wood and then that gasifies the wood and then you combust it in the gasified phase and it generates energy. So you don't burn it. Per se, is a you burn the gas that's come out of the world. Yeah, yes, exactly. Okay, yeah. That's another example of capital intensity, complexity as well, confounding the business prospects. Another example is not necessarily of a business that failed, but a business that took much longer to get to maturity. So this is the other thing you learn. It takes twice as long and costs twice as much as you anticipate when you go in. And if you take that on board, it still costs more and takes longer. Yes, exactly. Twice doesn't sound a big enough number, actually. Yeah, so... Um, <laughs> We had a business making biobutanol. So again, another Oxford Capital investment. It was actually a good business, a business called Green Biologics. They are using a technology to use lignocellulose, so waste fibres from sugar processing. So if you take corn, for example, you crush corn and get corn syrup, and the fibres that are left still have a lot of energy and a lot of value in them. And you can digest them using enzymes and you can create butanol. And butanol is used in nail varnish and a huge number of industrial processes. That's liquid butane, is it, effectively? No, so, it's, yeah. yeah, it's an alcohol. It's yeah. four-carbon alcohol, yeah. which is it's kind of like ethanol, which is alcohol, yeah. but it's kind of it's heavier, yeah. longer carbon chain, so it's yeah. heavier, thicker, burns for more energy because you've got more carbon in there. But it's also used as a solvent, in industrial processes and we backed that business on an idea from the founder and the business is still going today and they've built a pilot plant in the US but the founders left I, I was involved in having the founder step down from being chief executive and founder to being the chief scientific involved, officer involved so that's an interesting yeah, <laughs> it, so, was a, so, it was the right thing to do for the business yeah but the, there's a process you go through which is never easy right in then having a conversation with a founder about their future in the business because my interest in the business as an investor is to make the business as good as it can possibly be. And whilst being sympathetic to the founder, we've got to find the right role for the founder. And if the founder's constraining a business, we need to remove that constraint or repurpose that constraint, actually. I think in early stage businesses, it's often terminal. If you just fire a founder, it's never a good thing At to do. At angel level, it, it it's often never is. a good thing yeah. to do. And the founder's good because like, the founder's the person that has the vision. This view of the world is the way it should be that we talked about. And oftentimes they have the drive to get there, but they don't have the skill set. Yeah. So what you try to do is to match their skill set 
with the skill set of business building. And that's a difficult conversation, but it's one that we have all too often. I warn my CEOs at the beginning, they need to grow with the business or faster than the business grows in terms of their ability. Otherwise, they may not be CEO on exit. Yeah, that's a good thing to be doing. Yeah, so if you start early, then at least they'll work on that journey to try and always be slightly ahead, but they can't guarantee to do that. Yeah. So. It's been really interesting, Victor. I'm going to ask you this final question, which I think you know what it is because you listen to some of our podcasts. Thank you very much. So I guess you're in your early to mid-50s. Um, early, early. Still. <laughs> okay. I'm approximately 10 years older than you what are you going to be doing when you get to my age oh I hope I'm still in charge of Cambridge Innovation I feel in 2013 when we started Cambridge Innovation we had this big vision about what it could become I feel that I'm not even a quarter of the way there to delivering that vision and I feel it's still within my control and power I still feel that that opportunity is one that I'm still shaping I feel that I want to be here for... Okay, well, let's extend the question. In 20 years' time... I look, I'm never going to... like. I've been active all my life. I've always tried and pushed to do new things. I'll still be active. You know, if I'm not in Cambridge Innovation, if they force me to step down, I'll be some non-exec or an angel investor or an entrepreneur, maybe yeah, helping other entrepreneurs. I just love the vibrancy and the excitement of doing something new. Yeah. And I just want to do that until I drop. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Victor. We've learned a huge amount from you. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another Invested Investor podcast. You can subscribe to all future podcasts via our website, investedinvestor.com, or via a number of podcast platforms online. Remember, you can order our book online. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook to get the most up-to-date, interesting, and insightful content from The Invested Investor. <laughs>